Hello, you are now listening to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus Books, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com. If you'd like to support us, there's a number of ways you can do that. First, by checking out our books over at autofocuslit.com books, which is where you can also find a t-shirt with the logo for this podcast on it, which you can buy. You can also sign up for the newsletter, which is starting this year, over at autofocuslit.com email. You can also use the app you're on to rate the podcast or maybe write a quick review if you like it. And finally, of course, you can just tell some friends who you think might like the show. Okay, that's the advertisement. Here we go. Once again, welcome back. This is The Lives of Writers. Thanks for listening. I am the publisher of Autofocus Books and producer of this podcast, Michael Wheaton. Today's episode of The Lives of Writers is hosted by Mike Nagel. Mike Nagel is the author of Duplex and Cul-de-Sac, both from us at Autofocus Books. He also wrote the music for this podcast and a column called The Unintentionalist for the literary magazine Little Engines. Coming up very soon, you'll hear Mike in conversation with Brian Allen Carr. Brian Allen Carr is the author of eight books, most recently Bad Foundations, which is out now from Clash Books. His other books include Opioid Indiana, Short Bus, and Motherfucking Sharks. All right, let's get to it. This is Mike Nagel's conversation with Brian Allen Carr. I just read Hulebeck's uh, submission, and uh, he had a little line in there where it's like, you never get to fully know somebody, but alcohol helps. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, yeah. drink, I don't drink anymore, but that's the one thing, you know, so like, at my at my job, uh, about a year in, we had a party, and we drank and stuff. I didn't drink, but I remember being like, "I'm not going to bond with these people nearly as tightly as I would have if I was drinking with them." But that, I mean, which is okay. We're actually fairly well bonded now. But like, it's weird if you're drinking with somebody the first time you meet them. It's like you've known them for your, the rest of your life forever. And That's if you, part of the great thing. It is. It's the one thing that, too, like, people don't, it, you know, sobriety is weird because some people are, everybody has their little tricks for, you know, and oftentimes those tricks are, are based on other people's tricks. And yeah. for me, what always helps me is like, hey, let's lay it all bare, you know, tell me the fucking God honest truth. And, um, and the thing about not doing alcohol is is that you don't get to just bro bond with people you know yeah which is okay so long as you're aware for me for me like some people would then take that statement and be like oh that's you know stinking thinking or whatever it is you know and i'm like not for me i have to yeah. know, i have to know that that element's kind of falling away or whatever yeah I have a hard. I can be 
uh, extremely shy or introverted, and I wouldn't naturally like get into deep shit with people very quickly. But when I was drinking a lot, I could go to a bar alone and get into a three hour conversation with a stranger. And I'd never had an experience like that in my life. And so I think that the alcohol was the way in, but I think part of the addictive thing was how it made me feel around other people, like how much more open I felt even to, to listen to them and to, to share stuff with them. Like there was a real kind of a uh, beautiful moments that would happen with alcohol being kind of the the matchmaker the catalyst so almost yeah. the catalyst a little bit i think that was one of the losses when i when i gave it up mm -hmm. i was listening to your interview with uh listy and i was thinking uh you'd kind of talked about sobriety in it a little bit and i think your level of dealing with addiction is probably at a level deeper than mine mine was a pretty boring suburban uh functional alcoholism it sounds like you've maybe gone down uh swinging a little harder <laughs> well um it's always worse for people who have multiple shits going on you know and like i'm a little bit bipolar like i take you know mental meds and shit like that so so typically when you find people say in a recovery room who had a, a boring sobriety a boring trip to sobriety it's because one of the only things that was really deeply fucking them up was the alcohol. You know what I mean? I mean and they didn't yeah. have like a laundry list of shit going on. Um, yeah. And I don't know that I have a laundry list of shit going on. But then, too, I think I probably started drinking. Well, I'll tell you what. You're, you're in play now. We used to uh, play a game called uh, garage hopping. So in, in Plano, if nobody's, if people haven't been there, there's alleyways in most of the, behind most homes. And so we used to walk down those alleyways and steal shit about, out of people's garages, you know. And and one of the main things you would steal would be alcohol. And the earlier you start drinking, the more it's a demon for you. So we would, you know, at the age of 12, I was stealing alcohol out of people's garages and we were getting shit-faced, you know. Um, didn't, yeah. didn't start smoking weed till I was like 14. But, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I've been probably arrested because of alcohol maybe eight times, I guess. Yeah. Good time good times, bro. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. What part of Plano were you in? So I was on the west side. I went to an elementary school called Jackson and I went to a middle okay. school called Wilson. I didn't we moved for high school. High school I did in Corpus Christi, Texas. I'm repping okay. Corpus right now with my Whataburger hat. It's the birthplace of Whataburger. <laughs> but um my brother, my older brother went to Vines. And I would have gone. Okay, yeah. And I would have gone to Plano Senior High. Okay, great. My wife's a high school teacher. Okay. She teaches at Plano e East, mm -hmm. but um, her brother teaches at Plano West. Um, but she went to Plano Senior mm -hmm. High. So what? What? Very uh, what middle school did you go to? I was in a Christian school. Okay. Actually, it's another thing we have in common. I know your dad was a a pastor. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I went to a private Christian school out in Lucas, Texas, which is way. Not way east, but it's east of Plano, mm -hmm. um, out towards like Wiley. Like if you take like Parker Road all mm -hmm. the way east, you'll end up in okay in uh, Wiley or Lucas. So I went out there, but my wife went to all the. What I, I think she might have been gone to Vines um, Middle School. Was it a middle? That's it was a, a school, it was right? it was called a uh, junior high. So we had middle schools and then junior highs and then senior high. So v yeah. Vines was ninth and 10th. Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. They still break up some of the districts that way too, where the schools will just be two grades instead of a full like 9 through 12 high mm -hmm. school. Plano Senior High or West 
when I was there was gigantic. Like, dude, I remember they yeah. they took us on a trip there in the seventh grade, and it was like multiple buildings. It was like a college campus. Um, yeah. So they almost had to have that junior high set up. I only think there were two junior high, the ninth, tenth. I think there were only two vines, and I can't remember. But then all, okay. but then all of those people would then meet up at West, and yeah. just a huge school, but with a lot of amenities and things of that nature. It's a very affluent area. Um, yeah, I know, especially West. And did yeah. you say too you were here kind of during the the heroin mm-hmm. uh, stuff that was going on and. Mm-hmm. What was it, the early 2000s or late 90s? It was uh, kind of the mid-90s. So it got a little worse two years after I left, but or a few years after. So, so MTV did a story on Plano West heroin addiction in, I want to say, maybe 95, when I was like maybe a sophomore, sophomore in high school. And I had, okay. I had left after eighth grade. But so, oh, yeah. but so which is good, because I definitely had a some friends OD and die. Um, well, just one, there were these two twins and one of them OD and the other one got shot in the face and, and died. Um, uh, which whatever I did. I mean, they weren't my, they weren't my closest, closest friends, but we, we garage hopped together. Yeah. (laughs) I think Plano's famous for two things. Uh, Barney, the dinosaur came from Plano and well, Lance Armstrong also came from Plano and heroin addiction in the mid nineties <laughs> and suicide. Suicide was fucking rampant too. At the same time, it was like heroin and suicide were just a really, there was a, there was a kind of suicide epidemic with the, with the football team, with the, with the, really? with the West side senior football team. I think like maybe a handful of kids killed themselves. Jeez. I didn't know about that, but I know the stakes are high for those football kids. It's like the NFL here. Like, random people will know who the tight end is for Plano East or whatever. Mm. Like they're a superstar. It's crazy. So Wilson was the best middle school football program on the West side. And Renner was the biggest football school on the East side. Um, And, and you know, that was like, so my eighth grade year, we only lost to one team and it was to Renner. And it's cause I think, my running back dove into the back of my leg and twisted my foot completely around. And so the offensive line was fucked because I was one of the main dudes on the offensive line. So like if I had stayed there, I would have played, I would have played high school football probably. Yeah. But I broke my ankle real bad. The coaches were really shitty to me. I was like, motherfuckers, y'all broke my leg and now you're being mean to me. And, uh, and so I was kind of on the fence about whether or not I'd ever play again. And then we moved. And uh, when I when my leg was broken, I couldn't walk for like six months. And I, or no, I'm sorry, six weeks. And I didn't think I was ever going to play professionally. And I didn't want to ever be able to not be able to walk for six weeks. You know what I mean? So I, yeah. and none of my friends, I didn't know anybody in Corpus. Um, so I decided never to play again. I was like, well, I've, <laughs> I'm going to hang it up, bro. But yeah. yeah, I mean, I had buddies who then went on to play high school and college and stuff. Nobody, oh, wow. nobody, I think that I knew made it pro. But yeah, yeah, fucking Jesse Aragon broke my fucking foot. It twisted all the way around. I remember I landed on the ground and I looked up and I couldn't see my foot, and I thought it was ripped off. 
Okay. And and there had just been this guy who had died, um, who had played football, but he was like a year older than me. And um, he died in a car wreck. And the kind of urban legend that we heard about it is that his foot was ripped off in the car wreck. And when they found him, he was looking for it. And And so I look up in my foot, I can't see it. And I'm like, oh no, dude. I'm like, Chris, I lost my, my foot got ripped off. And uh, so I start screaming and looking for it, you know, like on the ground with my hands. Like, I'm yeah. like, where the fuck's yeah. my foot? So I'm like, where the fuck's my foot? And there's the other. Saving Private Ryan. It was trippy. And so there were these other kids puking because it was, it looked fucked up. And one of my coaches, he comes and he grabs my helmet by the face mask and he just, boom, hits me on the ground. And he's like, your foot's on you. Shut the fuck up. You're scaring the fans. And I'm like, Cool, God. cool. And then I was fine. I was fine. Oh like I didn't, I didn't cry or nothing. So my my uh, my principal was there, and of course she thinks they're gonna get sued to fuck. And uh, I'm not crying. She comes up to me. She's like, you know, I'm sitting on the stretcher. She's like, you're the strongest little boy I've ever known. And I was like, I ain't suing you, ma'am. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't say that or think about that. But it definitely made me feel good. But the worst part of that was is. In the hospital, they had to twist it back around. Oh, God. And they couldn't put me fully under. Like, they could only put me kind of, sort of, under. Um, yeah. So they put me on pain kills, and then they twisted it back around. It was most You could hear it. It was painful. And then they put oh, me on God. Demerol, and then I became an addict. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to start this. this uh, that, that gets us into the addiction. <laughs> I, I am curious. So your football career, I guess, ended there potentially well I when was, does i was okay <laughs> okay well you could think of your you we'll never know so you could think you could have gone all the way could have i could for the, yeah. i could be so rich <laughs> right now <laughs> i think i heard you had say in your other people interview the second one that art had always kind of been on your radar i liked what you'd said at one point that you just assumed that artists were, were meant to get into trouble mm-hmm. and like get fucked up and that this was part of yeah. the path to it how old were you when you started taking art and maybe writing seriously? Was it at all related to football kind of falling off the scene? Or when when does writing show up for you? I was six. Oh, wow. Yeah. My uh, my dad was a preacher. My grandfather was a preacher. Um, my grandfather used to tell me ghost stories. And then when I for Christmas when I was six years old, he gave me um, an Edgar Allan Poe book, which is probably in this room um for christmas and you know he like inscribed it hey you know you love my stories you'll like this guy's stories better and um i couldn't understand most of them i ain't gonna lie but i can understand the poems and then two i had another edgar Allan poe book and um yeah a lot of edgar Allan poe's books there's like little puzzles in them so like it'll be oh, a, really yeah like where like a girl's name will be like you, you take the first letter of the first line second letter of the second line third letter of the third line oh yeah and then it's the girl's name or whatever that the poem is about and and so even when I didn't understand the the poems I would read them and decipher them and then I was hooked. Something about him was getting through, even if it was not, not like on a completely cognitive level, like you weren't like getting it, but something was grabbing your attention in him. Some of them I got, um, but the stories were harder. Um, like I remember reading The Gold Bug several times as a child. It also had puzzles in it, but I was like, I don't, 
fucking get most of this story. The the, <laughs> yeah. the first poem in it was alone, and that of course is very easily understood. El Dorado is very easily understood. The Ravens very easily understood. Um, though Hark, well, I say that it's it's more complex. Um, yeah, the story is so long as there were two thousand words ish or less of so the Telltale Heart. Um, I would read those. Uh, it, you know, I mean, when I'm six or seven or eight, you know, and like I could get through them, but I'd be like, and eh. yeah. some of it, Cascable Montealdo's is a, is a two thousand word ish story. Um, but more than that, he had we had the same middle name, and uh, and you're six, you know, it doesn't take much. Yeah. Don't take much to be like, oh, you're basically my brother, you know, like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, He's also another writer who goes by all three names. That was one thing I was going to ask you is you've made the very cool choice of going by three names, which is the second most badass way people can refer to themselves. The first most badass is when they just do two initials at first. Uh, I thought like, uh, I thought about doing e that, you know, like Ecos. So yeah. the only reason I used my middle name is because when I started writing, there was an underwear model named Brian Carr, and <laughs> okay. uh, and so if you googled Brian Carr, he came up. And in my infinite wisdom, I was like, "That's a bad idea." And in hindsight, I should have just run with it. Could have <laughs> I could have pretended I was him, you know, yeah. at least on the internet for a couple of years. Um, yeah. But then also can I can only improve your search results. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then also my uh my grandfather liked that. So he was like he was like, if you're ever a writer, you gotta use your middle name, you know, like that kind of shit. Yeah. Um yeah. and then but but there there was a writer named Jensen Beach who's also one of the kind of Hobart writers. There's a beach in Florida called Jensen Beach, and he used his middle name for a little bit. Stephen Graham Jones says he wished or at least I heard a story back in the day that he wished he hadn't used his middle name. Mm -hmm. Same reason though, Stephen Jones, bro. How are you gonna Google that dude? You know, that's yeah, a, you're gonna get 12 million hits. Yeah, so so there's a pragmatic reason to it more than I'd say anything else. And sometimes, yeah. sometimes I'm like, now here's the other thing. I had the unfortunate, uh, so I'm an alcoholic, right? When I first start writing, well, BAC. Blood alcohol content, right? So everybody, <laughs> yeah. everybody would call me BAC, and that, and I still saw my books, you know, BAC. And in hindsight, sometimes I'm like, how juvenile? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's badass. Thank I like you. it. It's very singular. Thank you. I think. I appreciate you very thing, much. What was the first thing you wrote, and you thought, oh, that was pretty good. Maybe I'm good at this. Bro, you want to hear something horrific? My very first published short story was in a magazine that no longer exists online called Pendley Boss. I published it three days later. I got an email from a director named Jaron Albertine, and he was like, "Hey, I want to turn this into a movie." And uh, oh my god! And I was like, oh, "I'm a legend." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's over. But what happened? It, it it took ten years. And it did become a movie. And Johnny, really, your first yeah. story that you published. Mm -hmm. Johnny online. Knoxville's in it. Yeah, Johnny oh Knoxville's my in God. it. But That's here's insane. the here's the thing. Jared Albertine's career fell apart, and I think it's karma. When they did the casting call for that movie, it was called Whisper to Scar, which is the name of the story. And then 
when the movie was going into production, it was fixing to be released, it was called Weightless. And my name wasn't anywhere on it. And the only thing I had told Jaron was like, you can have it for free, but you need to make sure that my name's on it. And he did put my name on it finally. But like, uh, so like when the Writers Guild thing happened and, and, and you know, all the, all the screenwriters weren't getting, I didn't give a yeah. fuck, dude. Fuck those kids. I was like, y'all rip people off all the time. I hope you're poor. Eat a dick. But so he finally put my name on it. But like, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was weird, you know, because it was like, dude, all the characters are the same name. It's the same. It's the same story. I can't believe that. How old were you when the story got published? Twenty-eight, twenty-seven. But um, oh God. But so. So it, how does the so he get an email? And you just give it to it? Like, what? there was no negotiation or there's like, you just like, yeah, make a movie. I didn't have an agent. I didn't know anything. I'd probably submitted four times, you know? Yeah. And um, so I'm like, yeah, Jaron, dude, use it, bro. Use it. And uh, oh for the longest time we kept up, you know, and we were close and we had done some stuff together. Uh, I, it, it probably deeply affected my opinion of the writing industry in a way you know like when yeah i remember at the time my agent was bill clegg and and i was like bro is this okay and he's like yeah it's just how it happens kind of i'm like great all y'all are dickheads you know like I. (laughs) yeah if you told me you got like six like six figures for that i would be like wow that makes sense like you probably deserve I didn't get, a big paycheck. I didn't get a dollar. And at the very end, you know, I'm not on IMDb for it still. And it base at the end it just says based on the story by Brian Carr. He leaves out my middle name. <laughs> I told Jaron if I ever see him, I'm gonna beat his fucking ass, dude. Uh just because like Bro, I gave it to you. Yeah, he owed you the the smallest amount of courtesy of getting your name how you want it and putting like, like doing the, the one thing you asked. Do you know how much money it costs to put a person's name on IMDb? Exactly zero, zero dollars. fucking dollars. <laughs> so, so I was it, and it's unfortunate because I think it has made me guarded and negative a little bit because now i will say this i brag about the fact that johnny knoxville is in a fucking movie based on sure. one of my stores because like honestly he was one of my heroes um yeah went back when i knew him from when he was a writer writing for big brother you know um so that was awesome but like i didn't get invited to the premiere i asked jaron albertine one time i was like hey dude can Johnny Knoxville was a writer. Can you help me get one of my books to him and see if he'd blurb it? Motherfucker didn't respond to my email. I was like, that all right. Sucks. It's just that one sucks. more reason why I'm going to punch you in the throat if we ever meet. <laughs> like, and that's, well, maybe, maybe it's an asshole thing to say, but $0 to put somebody's name on IMDb, bro. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, negative, obviously, that sucks. But that's also cool. the, affirma- <laughs> the affirmation of your first story blowing up like that. I wrote for years, decade maybe, before I felt like anyone gave a shit. And even like something getting optioned for a movie is still like on a different planet for me. Do do you think getting that level of affirmation right away, did it hook you? Was was the success of that story part of what hooked you or something else already have its like 
it, it's hooks in you. No, I was already going to write forever. Um, my undergrad was in journalism and I was already writing for, you know, for money, but it was journalism. Um, yeah, okay. um, and I don't, I don't know that maybe it did. You know what? I'd be lying if I said it didn't. So here's the thing that all writers do. You'll sit around and you'll be like, well, should I be doing this? You know what I mean? And oftentimes I sit around and I'm like, well, you know, I'll list my little fucking accomplishments or whatever. And I'm like, well, bro, if I shouldn't, who the fuck should? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And so not in like an arrogant way, but just like, okay, so what? What does the universe need to give you so that you feel like um, you're justified in the pursuit? And, yeah. and, and when you first start, it gives you very little. It takes years and years and years, right? Like, and, and so at first, it's very small stuff. Oh, I, I got an acceptance in an online magazine or, or somebody gave me a nice Goodreads review or, or, or a writer read one of my stories and they told me they liked it. And then as you proceed, hopefully, and not for everybody, but for most people, I think people who, who in this industry um, pursue, they do get rewards. It takes time. And oftentimes, the only thing that keeps you from the rewards is your own emotions, right? Like, I'm serious, like, because you'll, you, you'll think that the world owes you more than what you're getting. And you'll, yeah. and you'll act out, or at least me, but I'm an asshole a little bit. And, um, and then, but so, you know, I mean, that's the thing about writing is you're always like, do I deserve to tell a story? Um, and, and, and what everybody I think has to do is figure out ways for that, um, answer to be yes. Yeah. Well, one thing I was going to ask you about is that you've had more than most people I've gotten to talk to on here, such a sustained career as a, like consistently putting out books in this in this world um at a pace that's pretty in- impressive like it, in the last your first book came out something like 20 2007 or something 11 like that. i think i had a book in 11 two books in 12 two books in 13 one in 14 skipped 15 had one in 16 one in 19 and this has been my biggest gap between books which is it's really four years but it looks like five on the calendar it seems like a pretty reasonable gap, especially for the work that you've been putting out in between and for how impressive Bad Foundations is anyway. I appreciate but my question that. is like, and we'll get into Bad Foundations, which I loved, by the way. Thank you so um, much. What have you learned about having a sustained creative life? It's like putting out work consistently, especially for younger writers who are getting into it. And like, I just put my second book out mm-hmm. and that feels like a huge accomplishment oh it is and congratulations but, um, on that you're seeing it everywhere everybody loves your writing man it's really really good too like oh you, thanks dude. you need to keep doing it for forever for sure that means a lot and hey. that's kind of what i'm curious about like what advice do you have for people who want to do this for a long time but even i'm looking at it and i realize like what are the rewards here they're probably pretty minimal financially maybe even in terms of like clout or success like what has it been for you that's that's kept you going? Well, I don't have much clout. Um, I don't. <laughs> I, think, I, I think you have more than you realize. Well, so I've never had more than 300 Twitter followers. Um, and I it's mainly because I'll get pissed off. I got blocked by somebody today. I was like, I didn't even think I said anything that bad. Uh, but then I'll get like my butt hurt a little bit because I'm not very good at social media. 
And oftentimes I'm like, I, I have a little bit of a, de- a, a defensiveness. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe because of Jaron, dude, I'm not even going to lie. Um, and, and, Your guard's uh, up a little bit. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And, um, but I would say what works for me doesn't really work for most people. Uh, I would not recommend anybody do what I do. It shouldn't work. <laughs> it shouldn't work. Like on paper, it shouldn't work. Um, but what uh, I'm fortunate in that if I like somebody, they can feel it real hard, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, and, but if I don't like somebody, they can feel it real hard too. Um, yeah. and, and so I try to like keep, and again, that's why I kind of distance myself a lot of times, but so, um, you know, monetary rewards have been, you know, I made 10 grand off my, off opioid, um, which when I first started writing, I was like, well, if I can make $5,000 off every book I put out, I would be killing it, you know? And what's, what's weird too, is that when I started writing, all my dreams and goals were before social media. Uh, So social media or clout, I wanted to be a, a a writer uh, who lived in obscurity and, and who died and became famous. Like I wanted, I wanted to be Jim Thompson, you know, and, uh, and I would deeply recommend everybody have a few writers who are their heroes and who never were successful during their lives. Uh, because that is the bulletproof vest on your soul of artistic endeavors to understand that you can't control that. All you're doing every time you sit down is like trying to get to God. And um, yeah, but I don't know. I mean, it's, I am motivated oftentimes by something like imposter syndrome or something like anger, which is not good for, you know, oftentimes the carrot I have to dangle is, is I need to prove myself. Um mm-hmm. Which, but, but it tapers off as you keep putting stuff out. You're like, oh, okay, uh, that a part of that does, goes away. And as, yeah. you, as you find, you know, writers who, who you love and can communicate with about the art, it, 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 um, it eases the burden of, of, of uh, self-criticism. And it doesn't need to be like you're famous. You just got to have some people you love. Um, yeah. and because no, you can't control rewards. I've seen people too, the longer you're at this, I've seen people who I thought were going to be famous forever disappear. And I've seen, yeah. and I've seen people who I thought were going to have infinitesimal careers, sell books for a million dollars. And, yeah. and, um, I <laughs> you mean, you just don't know. You don't know. I was telling my buddy the other day, he was just yesterday and this morning, he was texting me mm-hmm. about how much his new book sucks. He's working on it. And mm-hmm. I always send him this quote from, uh, do you know who Annie Dillard is? Yeah, I know the name. I don't think I've seen the word. And well, no, I don't. She, now that I say it, she writes like kind of nature writing, kind of spiritual. She's a beautiful writer. I think actually reading your work, you would like her. Okay. But she has this great quote. Uh, she has like this advice to a young writer. And it says, no matter how experienced you are, there's no correlation, either direct or inverse, between your immediate feelings about your work's quality and its actual quality. All you can do is ignore your feelings altogether. It's hard to do, but you can learn to do it. Uh, my, I guess what the reason I brought that up is 
I guess even in terms of like your own perception of your reception with readers or the way that people are, are liking your work, let alone your own feelings about your work. And I feel like you've, it seems have tapped into this where you can just keep working regardless of how you feel like it's being received. And I would say, I mean, you probably know better than me, but looking back at your resume and seeing books come out consistently, that to me is like, that is success. Like you've continued to make work. You've continued to find publishers that are stoked about it. Um, and that feels exciting to me. But my question is like, does that feel accurate to you? Has that been a part of what's kept you going is your ability to just put your head down and keep typing? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say I am both blessed and cursed by a kind of arrogance about writing. I just think I'm as good as anybody working. And I, I know that's not cool to say out loud, um, but I don't give a shit. I just, you know, I, I there's only two <laughs> things you can think. That you're as good as everybody or that you're not. And either way, you don't fucking know. So just choose the better thing to think. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's literally a conscious decision. <laughs> and I ain't gonna lie, sometimes I'm... No, I, very rarely do I think that my writing is not good. And, and, and very rarely do I think that I've produced something that I don't... I, I don't... If I'm writing something and I don't like... I guess that's... I know what I like real good. And if I'm starting a book and I yeah. get 20 pages into it, and I have a lot of 20 page books that, you know, I do. I have like probably six or seven books that I've started. Yeah. There's a cover out there for a lazy fascist book for a book called Lemon Yellow Poison. And uh, I love the cover so much. And I really liked the first 15 pages in the concept. But I couldn't, I couldn't do it. It wasn't there. And I, I have a very Mark yeah. Twain feeling about books where if the book's not writing itself, then you're not supposed to write it. And I don't know if that's true per se, but it's how I've operated. And usually, so say for Bad Foundations, it started off as a book about somebody who goes to jail and meet somebody who's a flat earther. And so they, I wanted to write a book where they break out of jail and he proves to him that the world is not flat by they go and watch sailboats. Um, and so I, so the first chapter that I wrote in, of when I was working on Bad Foundations ends up being like chapter 15. That is the first thing I wrote. Uh, the the, yeah, the trap really. trade story. Wow. Um, and that was supposed to be yeah. the arrest leading to going to jail and meeting Trap Trey was the opening scene. Um, I've also, but I found that sometimes the thing that gets you into the book is that everybody thinks that, oh, I have this idea. It's the start of a book. Maybe not, though. Maybe it's a, a, it's, it, it's a component of the yeah. book or an aside in the book or a, um, I don't really often think about short stories anymore. Uh, I, I'll do them every now and again, but I, um, if I if I'm able to carve out time, if I'm able to sit down, me usually I'm like I'm working on a book and and, and a short novel. I, I'm very yeah. I want to produce an oeuvre that's very similar to Jim Thompson or Kurt Vonnegut. I want to 
have a bunch of 220 page novels and some of them will, you know, find an audience better than others, but that's not what I can do. What I can do is be true to a style. And then if I'm true to that style and I keep kind of working in that mode, then it's not, it's more likely that I'll improve. Uh, and if I'm tackling some very yeah. different uh, type of writing and it's not that totally, yeah. I think that most people would read my books and say they're pretty different book out, you know, each book's different to me. They're all the same. And, and uh, who, I can't remember yeah. his fucking name ever. I think it's George Meadows wrong. The guy who uh, came up with Mad Max, uh, he has three very well-known oh, yeah. properties, uh, uh, works. Mad Max, Babe the Pig, yeah, and Happy Feet, and he says those are all the same fucking movie. <laughs> and That's and he's right. Though. Yeah, it's a it, there are heroes' journeys in unique situations. Yeah, and and that's how I think about my books too. Is that in a lot of ways they're they're all the same. Yeah, uh, with different clothes on or something, you know, and like. Um, I love that though. Yeah. I think sometimes there's this pressure or perception that an artist should push themselves. Should their next thing should be so different than their last thing, like that they need to challenge. But I am in this space right now too, where I'm like, I just want to do my one thing over and over again, better and better every time. Like here's my lane. I want to live in it. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, like as you've been in this lane that you've found, this is one thing I'm curious about. I, having done so many books, what have you learned anything about your lane? How, how, like, how would you would you approach the first book differently now, having been in your lane for eight books since? Um, or is it so, even though it's the same lane, it's still a new challenge every time? So, a left-handed batter in baseball and a right-handed batter in baseball are extremely different but they're only swinging from an opposite side of the plate. And, and right. Like that's a huge fucking change in that game, but it's not mm. a real change at all. It's yeah. They're doing the same thing. Same thing. Opposite side of the plate. Um, and so I think at the time I write the books, that's the only book I could have written. Yeah. And, and so like, sometimes I go back and look at short bus, which is my very first story collection. Some people think that's my best book. Uh, it's not very well known. Um, and the, usually the people who think it's my best book are the pe the writers from South Texas. Because it, it was a very distinctly South Texas book, as was Vampire Conditions, which is my mm -hmm. second book. Well, Short Bus was a, a, a six-cycle story, um, or six-cycle short story collection, where I went flash fiction, 2,000 word story, 5,000 word story. And I didn't think it hit the way I wanted it to. So Vampire Conditions is a three cycle short story collection. It's a piece of flash fiction. It's a 2,000 word story. And it's a 5,000 word story. Three different times. So I do think that probably with Vampire Conditions, I mean, I was basically trying to recreate Short Bus in a way yeah. that I thought would sell better. If I put it out on a micro press, and I did, I put it out with Holler Presents and Scott McClanahan. Um, mm -hmm. And then I'd say, you know, 
Then I had a book called Edie and the Low Hung Hands, which was a kind of an, a, a, an action novella. And I and I went to an AWP and I read a part of that. And Cameron Pierce, who ran Lazy Bass, just happened to be in the audience. And he really liked it. And he was like, hey, will you write me a book called Motherfucking Sharps? And <laughs> it's an action novella. Both of them are set in Texas. And then my next book is a horror novella that, that builds off of Motherfucking Sharks. And then I started working on Sip, which is a horror novel. It's in South Texas. So, like, most of my books, you can see these. I'm making these steps further along. Yeah. Uh, with, right. with opioid, I went back to a kind of realism, but I split it into these sections where these sh there's these shadow puppet sections. Well, when I was reading the reviews on Goodreads of that book, a lot of times the people thought that the 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 shadow sections, which are kind of these more speculative elements, uh, felt a little disjointed from the rest of the book. So I was like, okay, when I do my disjointed elements, because I always do some kind of disjointed element in Bad Foundations, mm -hmm. I need to make it more contiguous, which I did. All of the elements in Bad Foundations that are kind of interstitials, they reveal plot. They reveal character building. And yeah. so, and, and yeah, and so that, I mean, each time out, I, I do, I pay attention to what people say about my books. And I care about pleasing the audience uh, very yeah. much. I want I want people to be able to sit down my and read my books and and be like that was an enjoyable read. Um, yeah. Like that's really important to me. And 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 so I do pay attention to what re readers say. And then I think I let that inform my next book. I take the DNA from the previous project that worked. I retool it a little bit in in, in, in a way. I mean, like those two books, Opioid Indiana and Bad Foundations. There's similarities but not to, you know? And so I think yeah. that's kind of what I do as well as I just try to, what worked last time? What didn't? And, yeah. and, and but like I said, each book I wrote, that's the only book I could have wrote when I was writing. It, totally. it, I don't have a very big say. Um, the only thing I have a say in is like, okay, here's the premise. Here's the plot that, that I can, I sit down, I map that shit out. I, I write plot down. I, before I finish a book, or like when I'm coming to a book, I, I, I outline. I don't follow that outline completely, but I outline. The trick, the, 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 the complication is the voice. Like who the fuck's telling the story and why? And what's yeah, their swagger yeah. and what's their speed? Once I find yeah. that, man, I write my books in six weeks. Uh, really? Yeah. Or maybe a little bit longer, but like that's what I'm hoping for. A six-week project, 12-week yeah. project. I think maybe Bad Foundations... I, Bad Foundations was a little bit longer, but when I finally had the nut of the book, it was maybe maybe eight weeks. But I already had some components of it. But I also like that concept too of like, to me the 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 work of writing doesn't usually involve writing. It involves a lot of thinking and plotting and totally. conceptualizing and like what 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 books am I taking and 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 putting into this book or or, or, yeah. or what philosophy like you know what philosopher am i thinking about what 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 aesthetic am i thinking about yeah and then and then it's kind of just a consideration of okay i i know that i want to have this vibe in this book and i know that i have this plot that i can deviate from but start with and then it's just a consideration of like sit your fucking ass down bitch and write the fucking book 
And so, like, when I'm drafting, I'll spend 10 hours a day at a, at a computer. Uh, I'll, oh, damn. I'll fucking write 6,000 words, get up, walk for an hour and a half, come back, sit back down, fucking go, dude, fucking go. And, uh, and, and I'll promise my agents or something, hey, dude, you're going to have this in four weeks. And then I get it to him in eight. But like, if I didn't do the, hey, you're going to have it in four weeks, then I would have never. Yeah, it'd be 12 or. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I'm real kind of working class about it. I'm like, bitch, sit the fuck down tight. And uh, because here's the other thing. You can't get a book cover until you finish a book. And uh, there's nothing better than getting a book cover. <laughs> That's what you get out of it. When I asked earlier, what do you get out of this? The the, like, what keeps you going? You get a cover every like three three years. Bro, that is literally why I'm in the game. <laughs> well, I think they knocked it out of the park with this one. Holy shit! How cool! I appreciate how it. Joel, cool. Joel's a genius, dude. He's a cool kid, man. The guy who's doing stuff for Clash right now. Well, and he did all the images on the inside too. So has, I was going to ask you about those. Has a very good, in my opinion, you know. I feel like it has that nice kind of like the DNA all matches up. But I, yeah, I it feels Joel, very cohesive. Thank you so much. I told Joel, I was like, I want it to look like an old Activision video game all the way through. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, like these look like um, the chapter markers look like a level, like a new <laughs> level in a game yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Um. So I do want to ask some specific questions about the book, but I'm more curious, like I'm kind of surprised to hear where it started, that it actually started with a scene that to me doesn't feel essential to the concept of the book. Yeah. Um, I would have thought you came up with this book while you were in a crawl space one day and thought, hey, maybe this is interesting, all the shit that's under here. What would a person's life be like who lived down here? But I would love to hear in detail, like how this book came together for like, it started, it sounds like at a point in the plot two thirds of the way through at what point do you start writing at what point do you plot specifically and at what point do you get down and do this marathon six week typing like could can you kind of walk me through how this came to be a thing so the book was supposed to be a book about car sales so when I moved to Indiana, it was to take a, a case study writing job at a school called Rose Holman Institute of Technology, which is the number one undergrad engineering school in America. Uh, you ever seen that movie uh, or that show? Uh, the fuck's it called? Uh, the Big Bang Theory? Yeah, I'm not a ton of it, but I'm, yeah, where? So Sheldon in that book, he was from Corpus Christi, the actor. He wanted to go to Rose Holman for his undergrad, but they don't allow students under 18. And I don't know, it's just a weird little aside. Anyway, I was supposed to write case studies for them. And I did some, but like when I took the job, they were supposed to give me a, <clears throat> a $25,000 travel budget. And the way I envisioned that job, as it was sold to me, is that I was going to get to go embed myself um, in... Because the whole premise was I was supposed to be writing case studies that showed how engineers had come up with a an invention of value. Like, so one of the things I wrote about was Eli Otis and the invention of um, uh, people moving machines. He, he, he's the one who invented the elevator brake. 
So elevators have existed for quite some time, but they were considered death traps. And he, he invented the elevator brakes. It's actually a really cool story. It's probably one of the best sales stories of all times. Nobody would ride an elevator. And so he invented this brake. And the way that he taught people about it was as there was a World's Fair in New York. And he invented this elevator platform that went up 20 feet in the air. And he would get on it, have it raise up, and he'd cut the line. And it'd drop a foot. And everyone, ah, he's going to die. Nah, dude, the elevator brake kicked in. That invention in, made it possible for there to be skyscrapers. Skyscrapers, it changed, are amazing. It changed New York. It changed the entirety of the world. But it's not just the invention; it's the sales pitch too. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. so I was supposed to, at least in my mind, get to go do jobs that I got to write about. You know, I'd go work at Eli Otis at the Otis. Uh, I'd go visit the Otis. Um, uh, escalator uh, uh, plant or whatever. I don't know. It's not called the fuck. Yeah, yeah. But oh, it's Otis of the Otis escalator <laughs> elevator. It says Otis on all of yeah. the elevators. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. so I thought I was going to get to go do that kind of work. And 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 very early on, it was a grant funded job. On my third day there, like my third day of work, uh, my boss was this woman named uh, Kate Saint Ives. Uh, you know, whatever. She kind of screwed me over, so I'll, I'll share her name. I don't really care. Well, there's a porn actress named Kate St. Ives. So I'm convinced that this lady got this job because you couldn't Google her. Because she was like, she had lied on her resume. Bro, she didn't know how to use PowerPoint. I asked her my <laughs> first day. I was like, what style guide do we use? Bro, she didn't know what a style guide was. It was fucking <laughs> insane. So my yeah. third day there, we go to this... Uh, uh, conference and we're supposed to be teaching people what it is that we're doing well she talks for an hour to these people and man i didn't understand a single word she said like not like like i don't understand like the sentences didn't make sense and they pulled our funding i didn't get my twenty five thousand dollars travel budget because of how dumb she was dude i really don't care at this point in time and so uh uh but I wanted to do that kind of work, dude. Like my yeah, that sounds like an awesome job. Yeah, I want. Well, I wanted to go and bed myself. I wanted to do gonzo journalism like that. My, it's my like dirty time. jobs, with, but with uh, right, like for gonzo I'm style. I'm, my mom's yeah. a big fan of something called grounded theory. Um, she went back and got her. So when I when I was a kid, she only had an associates, but I had an older brother who committed suicide, and I think to get through that she went back to school got her bachelor's got her master's got her phd and uh, wow. so she got her phd when i think i was in my 30s but she was a big fan of this uh, concept called grounded theory where you're supposed to go into every every situation like if you're going to write about it uh as a blank slate it, which mm. is kind of case study writing and kind of gone so journalism you embed yourself and so yeah. I, I wanted to do that kind of work. Opioid, Indiana, I taught high school for a year and I wrote that book. So to me, that's kind of what it was. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then so I was like, well, let's do this again. But I wanted to work in a different field with a different type of language. When I was at the engineering school, their priorities were very different based upon their languages. So like they thought PowerPoint was very important. They called it if you were going to give them a PowerPoint or if you're going to email them a document, they called it a deliverable. A deliverable. Uh, and all these yeah. guys worked in higher ed, but they loved Donald Trump. And I was like, I wonder if maybe 
the language that they use, uh, just the, the the how they conceptualize these these these, con- you know, uh, these constructs, if that affects the way that they see the world. And so I was like, when I was at teaching high school, I was like, I'm going to go do sales. Very different than anything I've ever done. I'm going to go do face-to-face sales. And um, in Opioid, Indiana, I th- this kid finds a, uh, a, a philosophy book um, that he reads and then kind of integrates into the story. Well, what I did while I was teaching high school is I read the philosophers that I would not normally have gravitated to. So like a lot of times academics will refer to something as the left-hand side of the library, you know, like your Foucault's and your Derrida's and shit like that. Well, I was like, I'm going to read Francis Bacon and I'm going to read Voltaire and I'm going to read these people who have these very pragmatic notions of philosophy because I can teach myself to do a different job that way. Right. Mm. So I read mm. all these philosophers and I went and first I sold, I tried to sell a phone back phone book ads and I wanted to write a book called uh, uh, there at the end <laughs> about the end of phone books. And I couldn't sell phone book ads. <laughs> I don't know who the fuck. Some dude, some people could dude. Some people were yeah. making a hundred grand a year doing that shit, but so <laughs> couldn't do that. I went and sold cars. I was very good at it. And I wanted to write a book called salesman. Brian, I wanted it to be like Brian Allen Carr, salesman, you know, kind of hokey. Yeah, but yeah. I like that. Yeah. Um, and so Bad Foundations was supposed to be salesman. Uh, that's why it started with Trap Trade. There's a con- they have a conversation about vehicles. Um, yeah. And uh, but I couldn't find a book in that that I wanted to put out. I, I just couldn't find. I think I have it now, and I think I might still do it, but I'm not sure. Um, and what does the finding in the book look like for you? Are you you don't maybe you don't have a plot yet? Are you just are you just thinking about it, or do you sit down and write? See, do you write scenes? Symbols. What do you do? Symbols. Once I find my symbols, you know my symbology. Uh, yeah. Because um, that to me is the most important part, uh, and probably because Camus is one of my favorite writers, and, mm. and you know, so like there's this scene, you know, like little symbols that they'll have, or like, so like waiting for Godot. There's like four symbols in that, you know, and you just kind of play yeah. off that over and over again. Um, yeah, so could, couldn't find the book in the car sales and then the pandemic hit. And I was like, well, I got to find a different symbol. Uh, so I went on Indeed <laughs> and I found a job selling foundation repair. It was, you know, I was like, oh, that'd be cool. Bad foundation. Yeah, that'd be cool. So when did that? You could see a book in it oh, yeah. right away. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, it, and it also, too, it articulates a lot of the things that I find kind of complicated about American lives uh, because home ownership is very complicated in America. And, it, and, it, yeah. and it's the most evident articulation of disparity in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought it was, vehicles were like that, too. The other thing is, though, man, it's like I go into people's houses. I sit at yeah. their tables with them. They cry at me sometimes. We laugh. They tell me Jeez. about their families. So and so just died. They love me. I'm good at it. I love saying yeah. like well, because when I started, I was like, I'm gonna do this and do it well. So I can write a book about it from a perspective of somebody who can actually do it. Yeah. And uh I took a lot of uh pains to to become good. I read a ton of books. I 
I, I worked my ass off, like, you know, like uh, 80 hours a week. Shit. Like when I was selling cars, I worked 80 hours a week, bro. And I was yeah. like, I'm going to get fucking good. And I murdered it, dude. I was the top three salesman every fucking month. And, That's uh, top guy shit. You're a top guy. I was a top guy. Yeah. <laughs> I've always been a top guy. I'm the I'm the number one salesman of the company I'm at right now. I take uh, if you're gonna do something again, like you have two choices: do it good or do it bad. Yeah. It's a fucking mental state. Uh, and so I just just do it good. It's interesting, is I think people might see salesmanship as being somewhat anti-literary in a way or anti-artistic, but I'm I'm a copywriter. I know which I was going to bring that up. Yeah, and it's you, just a salesman. But, and also, you take it very. I, I heard you talking to Aaron Birch about it. I think like you 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 have a respect for it. And, and Absolutely. You, yeah, it's an art. And, and in fact, you've probably learned as much, if not more, about language. So when I was selling cars, you'd have a customer that you didn't know how to close and you'd go up to the desk and they'd be like, well, what did they say? Well, they said this. And then the desk would be like, go back and tell them this exact sentence. And you'd be like, what? They'd give you eight words. Sir, listen, we know that you might not think this car is perfect, but you've been here for quite some time. So you clearly enjoy the automobile. We can get you out of the door in it in an hour and a half. Or you can go back to a brand new dealership, meet a brand new person like me, yeah. and start the whole process over again. Why don't we just do it today? Put out your hand. Yeah. So they would give you the fucking thing to say. And then you would walk away from the desk, sit down in front of the customer, say the exact fucking sentence, and sell a car. It's and, amazing. And I was like... Bro, that is that is language elevated to to artistry in a way that you don't necessarily see in even literature. Totally, yeah. it's because you're really in a in a high stakes situation, thinking about what does this person need, what are they afraid of, like what's really in the way. And I think maybe like what the sentence you just said, what's in the way is that people hate hassle; they don't want to go start over again. It's maybe not even the money, but you threat not threatening, but reminding them that. You're going to have to go drive to another place and start this over. The thought of that is what's going to unlock. But like, yeah, if you think sales is a slimy thing, it's actually maybe the the straightest point into human behavior that you can find. Well, two, you don't have to be. I've known slimy salesmen. They're A lot of times they are the number one guy. And but you don't have to be that. You can be no. a million percent honest and even almost affectionate. Like, I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to yeah. trick anybody. I do want to get paid. And it's not even that I am all that motivated by money. I just like being good at what I do. If totally. I'm doing Like, when I was a teacher, when I was a professor, my classes would fill in four hours. And I was pissed if my classes didn't fill the day they opened. What the yeah. fuck did I do wrong last semester? <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I like pride feels better than disdain. And you like to, yeah, you do. You want to do things at a level that you feel proud of, that you feel like you've done your best at. And a lot of that bleeds into my writing, though, too, because like if I'm going to write a book about a foundation repair salesperson and I'm not good at it. What the fuck do I deserve to write a book about? Or or what book am I going to write? This shit sucks. Everything's bad. We're all fucking blah, blah. Yes, 
that's a given yeah life sucks that's a given <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> the more i've been writing i think when i first started i was drawn to that kind of bleakness i thought there was something cool about it or grown up in a way but the more i do it i'm like if something actually i was when i was re working on the latest book it had ended in a bleaker place and i sent it to this writer i love amy fusselman mm -hmm. and she had said like what if you uh what if it ended somewhere more hopeful and yeah. it made me rethink about the whole book like yeah if we're not offering some some hope in the world with literature like if it's not trying to find something beautiful then like why are we wasting people's time it's also the place where we are like dude our world is gonna fall apart or heal under our watch it's gonna be our age of people who fucking destroy or fix this shit show that we have going on right now so yeah being cool shut the fuck up go fix something <laughs> motherfucker this shit is falling apart and i have daughters cool yeah. people piss me the fuck off sometimes i'll be honest with you i'm like what are you trying to build for my daughters like yeah I, and and i know that that's like it almost sounds conservative which is bizarre to me that optimism has become a kind of what are you a fucking american you know what i mean like and i get that i totally understand it yeah but at the end of the day i have two beautiful daughters you know yeah what do you like how cool can i be like yeah. am i gonna shoot the fucking world down for what again you yeah. have two choices fucking pick the better one yeah right, when sorry. you look at it's it's lame <laughs> but like i don't know how you in, in our moment, in our world, I don't know why anybody would do art <laughs> with a, a bit a bit towards destruction. Yeah. Sorry. All right, yeah, that's I hear you, question. dude. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I hear you. I've been, lately, me and my wife are going through something with her, her dad. Uh, or he's not well, so we're staying with him. I think I told you. And watching somebody at the, it's hard to say the end of their life, but certainly yeah. in the decline of it, makes you rethink what we value and like what the point is and what the point of putting things out into the world. And I was telling my wife last night, actually, we were up late with him and I'd just been thinking about like, what do I value in my life? And I was, this is going to sound super lame, but it's like, I think there's three things I really want to do with like the time I have left. Like make me, I love making music. Yeah. I love writing essays. And I want to act like people are the most important thing in the world. Which they and are. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you forget it, you but do. it's like more than money, more than my time, more than the things beneath it. What would it look like to behave as if people are the most important thing in the world? How would that change the way I think about what I'm writing or what my perspective is on what I'm writing? Um, what are the implications of, of believing that? And I think I would think it would have to bend you towards an optimism. If people are the most important thing in the world, let's arrange things so that they are more comfortable in their in the short time they have here. Like, let's make sure they're not alone. Let's not hoard wealth when we could redistribute things. Like, it really has some high stakes when you think about the implications of it. You know, it does. I mean, and I would say too, like, either way it takes as much energy. It it, it takes yeah. as much energy. Like, so like, yeah. and I get. I get everybody's criticism of society, and I think criticism of society is necessary. You know what I mean? Um, 
I'm also from a weird place. I mean, I'm from South Texas, which is, you know, not a, it's an optimistic place because the majority of the people who are there have it better than their parents had it. And so it's bizarre in the context of America because almost everybody there has a better life than their folks. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, sadly, that's almost all the reason why you were happy or sad in life. If you're doing better than your parents, you're in a good mood. If you're doing worse than your parents, you're in a bad mood. Bad mood. So (laughs) I, I totally get it. Um, and the majority of America maybe isn't in that. Correct. You see so many things like yes. we can't afford to buy homes. Our income to cost of living is so much different than it was 30, 40 years ago. But I'll also say, too, that we've just decided as a society that certain things are more important to throw our hearts and souls into. Well, you and I are doing something that's fucking Star Trek level right now. So, like, yes, <laughs> my house is a little bit less affordable for me, but. What the fuck, dude? I can learn anything I want to in 10 seconds. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, so it's, you know, what are your priorities? And it seems to me right now we're prioritizing information as opposed to property. So I, I am pretty much of the opinion that in the future, audience will be the same thing as property to, to our grandparents. Like, you have a oh, wow. big audience size. That's more important than property. Um, but so, and and our society reflects that, like, so we we all, we have better iPhones every three years and okay. So, all right, well, you can't have it all. Everything in life is a series of trade-offs. Like, okay. So if one thing's going to get better, something else is going to get worse. The tears of the world are at a constant quantity. We know that from reading Samuel Beckett, right? Like, and so, and so sometimes I think that we, we have a hard time remembering that too. Like we have so many better things than our, than our great grandparents had uh, or, or parents. So like it's, it's choose our parents, right? Like a lot of them there didn't have air conditions in their car until they were 35, you know, like, I mean, so <laughs> yeah. there's trade-offs, there's physical comfort that we have that they didn't have. There's immediacy that we have that they didn't have. Do our homes cost more? Yes. Can you learn everything in 10 seconds? Fuck yeah, you can. So what do you prioritize, property or information? And it clearly seems that we're prioritizing information, which realistically is more healthy for the world. But it doesn't feel as great. Do you know what I mean? Because it's ephemeral, it seems, in some ways. But then even then, it's not. Because like, if religion is what got you into heaven in the past, religion is just information. You know what I mean? So, like, look at a monk, you know? That's a happy motherfucker in a fucking room who's got God, you know? He ain't got no yeah. possessions. Yeah. But but he's he's made a trade-off. Uh, the spiritual wellness for, for physical uh, acquisition. Uh, you know I mean? Realistically, you should, as a human being, prioritize spiritual wellness. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, it's anti-capitalistic to prioritize spiritual wellness. Well, we're all sp- most writers are supposed to be anti-capitalistic, but most writers, you know, they quickly tell you what's wrong with the with the possession side of the world, you know, and it's like that doesn't really line up with your political philosophy. So you're confused right now. Right. And I get confused too, and it's it's your lower moments and your higher moments or whatever. Um, but it's a series of trade-offs. That's what everything is, and some people, of course, get screwed more than others. 
and you always have to try to like work against that but like you can learn anything in 10 seconds you know yeah I am curious for a guy like you, especially who seems very engaged with the world and with his own mind. <laughs> I was reading uh, some old essays by E.B. White recently, and I think he was writing, I guess, during World War II. And he had this essay about how important he thought it was not to take a side, especially on something that pe like some, I think, writers that said, I won't write anything that's not about, I forget what side they were taking, but like they got politically involved in their writing. And E.B. White said it's an artist's job to be completely ambivalent. And I'm, this is a tough question and we can cut it if you want, but I'm curious, uh, what do you think your role as a writer is in a world that is so divisive and where every day on Twitter, it's like, if you're not saying something about Ukraine or the situation in the Middle East that you're not active enough, like do writers have a moral responsibility to get involved or do they actually have a moral responsibility to the reverse? So the other day I saw somebody writing about how, um, Typically, artists skew liberal because liberal people are more empathetic. Well, uh, Voltaire would not be liberal by today's standards. You, you know what I mean? Like, so there's a lot of these writers from the past whose political opinions now would not be considered empathetic. Mm. But at the time, they were. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the writer's job is to, of course, weigh the discussions of the day to try to make some kind of commentary on it. But I think where a lot of writers get twisted is we're not little politicians. Well, if we were, we'd be very amateur at it. Most writers are not that good at anything that would even, like, I don't want to sound like a dick, but most of us probably don't have great credit scores. Most of us don't make a shit ton of money. Most of us can't do what we want to do. And yet we know how the world is supposed to be arranged. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? So I think we're supposed to, of course, think about these things. Some of us have decided that they have the answers. Um, I'm 44 years old. I don't meet a lot of people more mature and more intelligent than me. And I write rated R books and fucking sell crawl space repair. So, like, everybody <laughs> the fucking breaks. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'd say with bad foundations, I mean, there's some political components and commentary. In Definitely. That yeah. It's Especially a very politically aware book. I'm not sure if it has a political conclusion. No, it, yeah. But it's certainly wrestling with it. Um, I'd say the biggest political statement I make in it is is the Ohio story yeah. about financing. Um, and, and But then, too, it's just a pragmatic statement. Like... I, I ain't gonna lie, dude. If, if I've recently had an African American family incapable of getting finance for a project to fix their home um, that was built in a in a neighborhood that was evidently showing disparity, if I go to a house and they have a Black Lives Matter sign in front of their house, I do want to ask them if they'll co-sign for that family. Like, are you gonna put your money where your mouth is a little bit? Well, there's clearly some redlining happening in this area. Hundred percent. Like. Look, if you want to help people, you easily can. Go to a car dealership. If you have good credit, if you have money and you want to help people, go to a car dealership, go up to the desk. Tell them, hey, look, if you ever have anybody who can't get financed for a vehicle, here's my email. Have them email me. That person emails you, try to become that person's mentor. What's the trade-off? You'll co-sign for them. If you're not doing something like that, shut the fuck up. Like, 
and I know that's a dick. I don't do it, but I also don't fucking act like I am fixing the world by putting signs in my front yard. Like, which is okay. Like, there's nothing wrong with any of that. Like, it, and it's necessary and important. But it's not like there's hurdles set up all throughout society that enable you to help people. You know what I mean? Like, everybody wants mm-hmm. government intervention. Bro, do something. You don't need to wait for an election. Go do something. Like, figure out a way to be the fucking change you want to see in the world as hokey and dumb and lame as that is. But if you're not doing anything, why do you deserve a microphone? Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, I I don't hold myself to these super high standards. I'm not a great guy. I try to help people when I can, whatever. I I've always voted Democrat. I consider myself pretty much on the liberal side of the moder- of the middle. Um, but like, I, I guess I worry about that. People who feel like you can think your way to being a good person. And I'm sorry, mm-hmm. but you can't think your way. You're, what you believe, it matters nothing. It, it, what you do is paramount, is important. It, 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 and it doesn't take a lot to, to help people. Um, you know, go volunteer at the fucking library if you really care about your community. And if you're not doing stuff like that, you have not earned the right to speak. You know, you you have yeah. to do the things that you say you want to have happen. Like, it seems to me it's the most elementary take. Like, do you follow your own rules? No. Then why the fuck should anybody else? And I don't under, and it seems political to say that, which is bizarre to me. It's bizarre to me that like demanding logical consistency in people, like that's bad. Like, I, 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 when did that happen? (laughs) I don't, but if that makes any sense, so I I think the writer's job is to showcase what people are doing if it doesn't line up with their theses you know what I mean? like yeah to point out the absurdity yes, of it i'd say that, that's maybe a way see... better way of putting that yeah point out the absurdities of human behavior in the context of how of how we are um essentially controlled or, or or how we engage with with our world in a political way we're supposed to i think as writers be like hey man you said this thing <laughs> but you did this other thing uh can you yeah. explain that to me you know what I mean? I yeah. think that's kind of maybe the only political job of a writer is like trying to find truth. I mean, that's what Socrates said, right? Search for the truth. Ask a bunch of questions. Why? 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 That's it. All right. That was Mike Nagel's conversation with Brian Allen Carr. You can get a copy of Brian's new book, Bad Foundations from the good people at Clash Books or wherever you buy them. And you can check out Mike's books, the new one, Cul-de-Sac, the previous one, Duplex, from us at Autofocus Books over at autofocuslit.com slash books. And if you want to support the podcast, I trust you know how to do that kind of thing by now. So do that, or not, 
your decision. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.